heavily, I'm a clown. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Oh. Peter, how are you, man? Very good. And yourself? Doing great. We're thanks for joining us. Um, you know, I, we, we've interacted on the Twitterverse quite a bit, but never in in Zoom. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, funny. You know, we get all wrapped up in this other stuff, and this is still probably the best way to communicate. You know, so. Oh, totally. Uh, um, and and I don't know if it was Ben that that found your account first or I found your account first, but I was like, I, I remember talking with Ben. I was like, man, that, that 92 ers guy, like he, he talks a lot about monetary history. Like in particular, you hit on a lot of stuff. Like you're constantly talking about, I like how you do like today in the financial crisis and you'll post something that happened on this day in 2007 or in 2008. Yeah. Um, you probably pay more attention to some of those minor details than anyone else I've seen. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that's one of the things, you know, like with whether it's the Fed or the Treasury, you know, they argue that this thing just came out of nowhere, you know, that they were, you know, victims of circumstance. You know, there's that um, Warren Zevon song, you know, send lawyers, guns and money, you know, and, you know, that's their attitude. And, you know, this thing was was building up for years. In fact, um, like even Dr. Michael Burry you know, who was one of the first persons to short mortgages, I guess he was the first, you know, he sold all his stuff off in August 2007. Mm. When Kramer had his meltdown on CNBC. And then of course, Lehman was a whole nother year after that. So I mean, that that's an aspect of the crisis that I don't think people, you know, appreciate that this was a long running thing. This just didn't happen over a couple of weeks in September of 2008. And, and, wouldn't you say that there's a lot of parallels with that event in 2007, 2008, Vice, uh, where we're at today and, and some of the warning signals that we saw as far back as early 2019, late 2018? Oh, you know, absolutely. In fact, you know, one of the points that I make is really this whole era of kind of central bank madness started with the emergency with the with LTCM, long term capital management in it collapsed in September of 1998. And then there was an emergency rate cut in October of 1998. It was between scheduled meetings. And you, you can go back and look at like a plot of the NASDAQ or something. The NASDAQ, I think, was at like 1600 in October of 1998. By March of 2000, it was at 5000. And, and, you know, the spark that lit that off was undoubtedly you know, the emergency rate cut after long-term capital management. You know, all the people leveraged up. They said, look, if anything goes bad, you know, the Fed and Greenspan will bail us out. And then, of course, that that collapsed, that bubble collapsed. And then that forced them to cut rates even more, which then blew up the housing bubble. 
And then when that collapsed, they, you know, they, then they started QEing and everything else. So again, it's this whole long-term running aspect of this crisis. This, this is, it's the same song, third verse, you know, basically now, in my opinion, yeah. So Peter, you're saying that animal spirits were not to blame for these speculative manias. Is that what I'm understanding? <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, you know, I'm not a big Star Trek person at all, but there, there's an episode that I remember. Um, it was the one with Khan, you know, and um, they capture this guy. He was like some sort of Superman or whatever from the past. And, um, you know, he's going through the blueprints of the ship and he's like, wow, you know, the technology, it's, it's so far beyond what I remember. He goes, but your crew, you know, you haven't changed one bit. You know, people haven't changed at all. And, you know, what better kind of proxy for our society today is there than that? You know, we have all this technology, but I mean, people haven't changed. You know, I, I was shocked to learn what, when I really, I mean, I don't know how long you've been studying these things, Peter. I'd love to know more about your background and, and how, what got you into um, picking these people apart like this. But I mean, I didn't really realize until I really went back and started reading more about monetary history prior to like the, the Civil War, real, or not the Civil War, prior to World War II, really because Ben and I focused so much on Bretton Woods and we wanted to learn more about like what things were going on in terms of um, monetary economics prior to Bretton Woods. And, and that required going all the way back to the founding of the United States. Really, a lot of the monetary policy and, and the economic intervention from the federal government today is just a ramped up version of what they've been doing for centuries uh, and to lesser effect, but to equally devastating outcome. Yeah, I mean, certainly the Civil War, you know, you had greenbacks, you know, that they, any sort of relationship between dollars and gold, you know, was out the window. And then, but it, eventually they unwound all that. Now it took years, you know, people talk about the 1870s and, and how bad that was. Well, that was just the after effect of, of the Civil War. Um, but certainly you're right. I mean, it's, none of this stuff is really that complicated, really, when you break it down. I mean, when, when there's an economic crisis, you know, what spawns it is a lot of people borrowed money that they can't pay back. You know, I mean, in essence, that's what happens. And um, as these central banks have gotten more and more untethered, they have more freedom to think they're solving the problems by paper and over these losses when all that does is just make the problems bigger and bigger, you know. So I'm curious, um, back in 2008, when we had the, the financial crisis, then were you privy to all these things back then? Or were you kind of lost in the sauce? No, I mean, I certainly everything seemed, you know, out of kilter, you know. Um, but it was only after the collapse. And, you know, there was never like, like, I'm a mechanical engineer, I'm an engineer. So like when a plane falls out of the sky, you know, there's this big investigation, you know, to figure out exactly what happened and what do we need to do to prevent it from ever happening again. And really, when you think about it, there really hasn't been anything like that after 2008. You know, there was this financial crisis commission and, and stuff, but I mean, like, for example, they didn't even interview Andrew Cuomo, who was secretary of HUD you know, during the worst years of the, of the housing bubble. 
And so that's really what prompted me to, to, to kind of do a, a, a study of this. It's like, okay, really, let's, let's try and figure out what happened. Because um, I'd like to write it. I mean, I have a draft of a book that's completed. I just need to find a publisher. Hmm. So, Interesting. Yeah. Is that sort of like a postmortem? Like for... Well, it's, it's definitely to, to review all the aspects of it. And then it's not just that, I, you know, like, for example, you know, in my opinion, one of the big things that precipitated the 2008 crisis was, was this net capital rule, which is a, it's a kind of an obscure rule on Wall Street. But it limits the leverage that like Wall Street banks can use. And it was changed in 2004 to surprise, surprise, allow, allow a lot more leverage. Mm. And I mean, it took out Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. You know, without those changes to the net capital rule, Bear Stearns and Lehman never would have been leveraged 30 or 35 to one, whatever they were, they couldn't have been. And, and you think, well, gee whiz, you know, we've had this near death experience. You know, let's go back and, and fix those rules. You know, all those changes are, are still in place which is why the repo market is a trillion dollars or whatever it is. I think it was 1.13 what I saw. Yeah. And today. I mean, that, that goes directly back to those changes to the net capital rule. And, um, and, and, you know, so I, I'd like to think it's more than a postmortem. It's like, okay, look, this is the stuff that caused it. And then this is what we need to do to make sure, you know, it doesn't happen again, sort of thing as best we can. Well, Peter, so one of the ways I look at it, and I wonder if maybe you'll maybe disagree with this at all, but, um, you know, you talk about like one of these rules that changed and then kind of the crisis precipitated after that. And I'm pretty sure that you you actually might agree with my position that it's it's not the rule that we need. It's that the money uh, is so broken on the fundamental layer that we actually have to like build up this complex system of rules to keep the machine going and like not grinding to a halt but like also like lubed up and like all these like crazy little things. And the, in this one case, like it started going, Hey, why this other way? So they start this rule and then these things kind of precipitate out like a house of cards. Right. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that is, is, I mean, and that's the other thing is like, like when people talk about, you know, the concentration of wealth and all this other stuff, it's all a consequence of the monetary defects. And, and, you know, you're exactly right with, without these monetary defects, these, these crises, you know, they can never build up to kind of a, a critical mass. Um, and one of the, there's this guy, Benjamin Anderson. He wrote a book, a book called, um, I think it's called Economics and the Public Welfare. And it's like a survey of U.S. economic history. It's, I mean, it's worth its weight in gold. And, and he makes that exact same point in so many words when he compares the Great Depression to the Panic of 1907. And he says, look, the Great Depression, you know, the Federal Reserve was supposed to make, you know, economic crises smaller, not bigger. Mm -hmm. right. And, right. and why was the Great Depression so much worse than the panic of 1907, which th was the reason given that we needed a Fed? It's exactly what you said. Rather than being a source of stability, the central bank then becomes a force of instability and the imbalances are allowed to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And when they finally collapse, the crisis is bigger. I mean, I couldn't agree with that more. And like I said, I think comparing the panic of 1907, which had no central bank at all, and how bad that was with the Great Depression demonstrates exactly, exactly what you're saying. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I wrote about that in uh, 
in the article that I published called Fiat Lux, where, uh, and, and I take all of this from, from Rothbard, Peter, I don't know how familiar yeah. you are yeah. with the, yeah. the Austrians, but um, his book, History of Money and Banking, you know, he, he basically lays out every financial panic from the founding of the United States all the way up until Bretton Woods. Um, and the panic of 1907, really no different than every other financial panic preceding it. You know, you had this expansion of money supply and expansion of credit, and then this over-speculation, and then this liquidation period. And then the government says, well, well, we're just going to halt the um, redemption of specie for a while. And we'll just, and, or and we're going to like shove some of these um, emergency banking measures in place and try to prop things up for as long as we can until things kind of settle out a little bit. And it's like, banks, you keep lending, you keep doing your thing. Just don't give anybody any gold or silver. And uh, the 1907 panic was the precursor for the Aldrich plan, which was the how, how they were going to quote unquote break up the money trust in Wall Street that was creating all of this financial chaos. Um, and then, you know, we had. 1929, obviously. And, and something Ben and I learned early on in our, in our studies of this was, holy crap, the money supply steadily increased throughout all of the 1920s. And then you had this major cascade of liquidation of, of debt and credit and money um, in 1929 when, when equities collapsed and nobody could pay it all back. Um, and that was when they stepped in with the indefinite suspension of redemption of specie. Uh, in 1933 and, and all of those FDR emergency banking measures that we still have today. Yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, a big part of the depression too, or what sparked it off was um, when Great Britain went back on, on the, on the, on the pre-war um, standard, a uh, gold standard for, for the pound, which completely overvalued the pound. And uh, because of all their war debt that they had built up, and then Montagu Norman, who was the Bank of England chairman, he convinced Ben Strong to cut rates in the U.S. You know, to, to prevent England from having to raise rates. And that was in July 1927. And kind of exactly like the long-term capital management thing, July 1927 corresponds perfectly with the stock market going parabolic. Hey, Peter, do you know that um, quote by Montague Norman where he says uh, we must use this, um, the red and the blue to distract people while we foreclose on all their homes? Have you have you heard that quote? I haven't. No. Oh, no. I got to look that up for you. It's in um, a book called uh, Central Banking, a History of Enslavement of Human ma Mankind or something. And it's Montague Norman. Yeah, uh, he's addressing like a bankers association. And he basically says that, like, we'll use the political system to distract people of like things of no important to distract them from the fact that we're foreclosing on all their homes and shit. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, strong people cautioned Ben strong said, look, this is wrong. And all he said, well, this will just end up being, he called it um, a coup to whiskey for the stock market. He just thought it might lead to this little stock market, you know, rise. And of course it, it was went way beyond that. And that's some insight into how little Ben Bernanke knows about the Great Depression, even though he's supposed to be an expert. He holds Ben Strong in like the highest regard, you know, when he was a huge cause of the problem. And I mean, if, if you read any of Ben, uh, ben Bernanke and, and when he talks about the Depression, he's like, well, look, when Ben Strong died in 1928, that was, you know, that was the point of no return. I've been saying more and more lately because again, again, you know, what we saw then is just a, um, uh, 
a blip on the radar compared to what we have now. Um, just everything so much worse. It's so much more exacerbated. Uh, and, and, it, and it's feeling more and more desperate. At least I get that sense that you can start to feel the desperation in the air. Um, and, and plenty of people don't understand it, but they feel it too. Uh, and they don't know why they're so desperate and they don't know why they're, they're on edge and scared. Um, and, and the political system has just become so much more charged and, um, so much more polarized. You know, I feel like people are more split than they've ever been. And maybe that's just a product of being young uh, and not being alive, you know, during any other point in time in history and, and not knowing what it was like then, you know, firsthand. But um, it, it, it concerns me, you know, it concerns me a lot because I know that the, the, these are not new experiments and when they go bad, they go bad quick. Um, where do we, where do we go from here? Yeah, I mean, you know, we were talking before about, you know, all these financial crises ultimately amount to, you know, huge amounts of money being borrowed that can never be paid back. And I mean, that's basically what we have, right? Whether it's, you know, individual debt, government debt, corporate debt, it's just, it, it, you know, it's just built up, you know, to these unsustainable amounts. I mean, like the Fed's talking about, you know, tapering. And I guess, yeah, they could, they could reduce their asset purchases, but I mean, they can't raise rates. Mm-hmm. I mean, the government debt is $30 trillion, you know, a historic average is 5%. And that, that's probably on the low side for government debt. Well, 35% of 30 trillion is 1.5 trillion. That's how much the government takes in in personal income taxes. They can't pay that in interest. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard to see how there isn't like another Bretton Woods or what was it, the Plaza Accords of the, of the mid eighties, because it's not just the United States either. I mean, Europe is just as bad. Japan is just as bad. I mean, you know, you said it, Ben, it's, it's a monetary disease, you know, I mean, it, it, it's the days of kind of rearranging chairs are over. It's like the whole building has to be, you know, rebuilt or something. Yeah, you don't and you don't have to get political with this question if you don't want to. It's totally up to you if you want to, you know, feel free. Um, But how much of the last year and a half do you attribute to the monetary meltdown vice? You know, are are we really in a deadly pandemic or um, is the world just going a little crazy because the the money spigot's going out of control? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly an argument to be made. I mean, like like during a war, you know, caution is thrown to the wind as far as money goes, but you have all these other controls to, you know, to keep everything from spiraling out of control. Like when people go back and look at World War II and say, well, gee whiz, everybody was working. That shows you that a planned economy works. It's like, well, yeah, everybody was working, but GM didn't make a single car. You know, you couldn't buy gasoline. You couldn't buy butter. You couldn't buy steak. What kind of an economy is that? Um, So certainly a crisis gives the people in power even more power. And and there's certainly an argument, you know, to be made that maybe that's what's driving some of this response. I I just think it's the nature of these people that we put that we keep electing into office is, you know, they're all mad for power and you give them a, a circumstance where they can expand their power and, you know, they'll they'll do it, I think, you know, whenever they can. You know, 
I, and, and Ben and I kind of, you know, have taken a lot of issues with democracy in that regard, because this seems to be sort of the inevitable outcome. Uh, and I think it's why, you know, after the Continental Congress, when someone walked up to Benjamin Franklin and said, Mr. Franklin, what did you give us? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. I think yeah. that I think he knew. I think that they knew, yeah. um, you know, if, if you didn't keep in place sort of these checks on um, mob rule, then you were going to end up with mob rule and you weren't yeah. going to like it. Um, but, you know, where do like where, where do you see in the next 10, 20 years, like does the, does the U.S. see balkanization? Do we see a, a monetary reset of sorts? I mean, you kind of already alluded to that. I mean, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin, too? Like, do you see that fitting in anywhere on this? I mean, you know, certainly I have to admit to, to not, you know, being on board from the get go like I should have been. But certainly, I mean, Bitcoin, it's it's a reaction to what's going on. I mean, it's, I mean, not to get into the whole gold versus Bitcoin, because I think they're complementary. Um, but I mean, obviously, the advantage of gold is, is it can't be printed. You know, they can do whatever they want to the money supply. They can't magically conjure gold out of thin air. And, you know, that's historically what gold has been. It's been a way to protect your purchasing power. It's not necessarily a way, you know, to become wealthy. Um, and, and I mean, that's clearly the advantage of Bitcoin. It's like, look, there's only going to be 21 million of these things, regardless of what the monetary authorities do. That's all that we're ever going to make. And, you know, it's obviously transferable. It's digital. It's all these other things. So, I mean, it's a perfectly natural reaction to everything that's going on. You know, no doubt about it. I'll refrain from beating you over the head with our talking points, but we have a lot of them in terms of... Um... The ways in which Bitcoin kind of obsoletes gold as, as the final settlement layer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, you know, you talked about this monetary disease phenomenon. And for me, it's not a matter of that we have a monetary disease as a, a matter of willpower in our society. It's that the technology is fundamentally broken. Gold served us so well for so many thousands of years but it, it broke down as a, as a medium of exchange um, because it, we couldn't move it around more quickly. And that's where Bitcoin steps in. And yeah. because, you, because you have that discrepancy between the, the thing that you're actually using as the money and you need the paper just to move it around, like that, that's not a solvable problem. And that's why we think Bitcoin like is inevitable. Um, I, and I, I feel like having watched you for a few years now, because I think you, you and I had interacted a few years ago before I'd even come up with the the WTF site with um, with with a clown over here. I, I feel like I've seen you talk a little bit more about Bitcoin as time goes on, but I don't see you talk about it a lot. So I just I wonder, you know, kind of where you're at with it. Yeah, no, like I said, I mean, it's it's the the one thing that I don't understand. I understand exactly what you're saying. And and I mean, I think like as as there's this guy, John Exter, who um, the guy kind of a central bank authority when in a classical sense. And he kind of came up with this inverted monetary pyramid with gold was at the bottom. Of course, this is before Bitcoin and all these other stuff. And, and to me, that still makes sense. And if you think about how much gold there is, um, it's hard to see how that ends up having no value whatsoever. You know, um, but, but I understand exactly what you're saying about it being transferable. The one thing that I don't understand it, and it's not anything I've studied, so it's not like there isn't an answer for it, is, is, is all these competing coins. And, you know, what's to say that 
you know, Ethereum or whatever they are, you know, isn't the same thing as Bitcoin and why that eventually doesn't become, you know, the means of exchange, um, that sort of thing. That is definitely the topic of the day, isn't it? There's there's a lot of um, conversation about that. A lot of, oh, it's very tribal. It's really hard to sort through online in particular. There's just a lot of, you know, a lot of people are heavily, heavily invested. Like people have fortunes in some of these tokens named after dogs. And like, it's, um, it's hard to have a realistic and honest conversation about it, especially with people who have financial interests um in whatever it is that you're saying is stupid um it, it it's definitely there's a lot so the answer that i would i mean it's it's nuanced it's multifaceted but like a sort of a broad answer is that every design decision has trade-offs right uh so first and foremost like bitcoin uh, i think a lot of these other tokens if not all of them um they have founders they have companies they have marketing budgets they have roadmaps um, Bitcoin is sort of the only one that just emerged and then everything else sort of copied it because it's profitable because um, SEC has yet to come down on some of these people for offering unregistered securities for whatever reason. Um, yeah. But, you know, in my mind, when you have uh, a, a, a token offering, so like Ethereum is a great example. It was one of the very first ones that did this, not the first, but it was one of the very first they set aside all this Ethereum in the very beginning. They just created it out of nothing and said, okay, we're going to go ahead and sell 70% of this to early investors. Um, and they can get in on the ground floor. And then from there, we'll do what Bitcoin does. Um, so, I mean, that, that's in my mind, right? And who am I? But- that, I mean, that, and see, you know, that's like, like even, you know, it wasn't government fiat that made gold money. You know, it was spontaneous, just mm-hmm. like they're talking about Bitcoin. I mean, no government insisted that its people use gold for money. That's what people were doing already. And then the governments just define their money in terms of so many grams or ounces or whatever of gold. I mean, people who say you need a government to have money have it, you know, totally, totally backwards. Cause I mean, we know from history, that's not what happened. And so certainly the spontaneous aspect that you described that, you know, that is a very, very compelling um, advantage. Mm-hmm. you know, compared to some of these other ones, like you said, which were just kind of conjured up. And, you know, to take it a little bit beyond that, um, like, I, so what I said earlier, and you understand this, I'm sure very well, because you're an engineer by trade, um, design decisions have trade-offs, right? So you, you can't, when somebody comes along and tells you, oh, I, I built an airplane, but it's 10 times faster than regular airplanes, and it's 10 times lighter, and it's 10 times safer, you would say, there's no way. Like that's impossible because you can't do that because right. somewhere in that design process, you made trade-offs uh, and, and you lost a little bit of, you know, maybe you lost fuel efficiency. Maybe you lost, um, you know, hull integrity. I don't know what it is, but somewhere you made some decisions to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of these competing, you know, and they call themselves cryptocurrencies. Uh, I'm not too privy to that word, but um they make all kinds of design trade-offs to improve transaction throughput, to uh, supposedly improve security or supposedly improve descent. They, lots of marketing buzzwords, lots of uh, icing. And at the end of the day, uh, what they're not doing is focusing on the robustness of, you know, base layer settlement and, and decentralization and, and slow and steady 
um, you're, you're seeing a lot of like move fast and break things, the Wall Street VC angle, or the more so like the Silicon Valley VC angle, uh, move fast, break things. And let's see how many transactions we can fit on a single block in the blockchain. Whereas with Bitcoin, it's like, no, okay, we need, we need one for this to be um, verifiable for everybody, like at the base layer. We need everyone to be able to download a copy of the ledger and audit them if they want to. Uh, and a big part of that means that we have to limit the throughput of the chain at the base layer so that the size of the ledger doesn't grow out of control uh, in a short, immediate time frame. And a lot of people have uh, an an analogized this to um, like the way money systems scale currently, because wrongfully, a lot of people compare Bitcoin to Visa card, um, but which we know Visa card is like a third layer network on top of you know, the Fedwire and SWIFT system that we have today. Um, or maybe you could even take it further back and say on top of gold. But all that, that settles analog and it settles in real time and it's very slow. And, and even Bitcoin, which only can handle like what, seven transactions a second or something like that, um, is an order of magnitude improvement in that regard. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, like I said, I don't begrudge anybody, you know, that wants to protect themselves from what's happening with, with, you know, all the currencies that are managed by central banks. Yeah. hundred percent. And uh, yeah. Well, I definitely don't, I don't mean to, I don't even, I didn't even bring you on to like try to give you the orange pill. I just, um, I'm always curious because, you know, doing this for a while, Ben and I have met a lot of people with a lot of backgrounds and some really smart people with incredibly, um, well-rounded understandings of, of this history that brought us to where we are. Uh, and to Ben and I, like, you know, Bitcoin is like where we have all, you know, where we're hinging all of our hopes. Um, and I'm, I'm always looking for people who bring a fresh perspective and, and don't necessarily think that way. Cause I want to know if maybe I have a blind spot and I'm sure Ben uh, would say the same. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the, the economists that I really, think uh, very, very highly of is this guy named uh, Wilhelm Repke. He was one of the guys behind the recovery in, in post-World War II Germany. And, you know, he has a quote, or it's just an observation, whatever you want to call it, where he talks about, you know, in the creation of goods, the most important pedal is the accelerator. In the creation of money, the most important pedal is the brake. You know, and now he was writing, this is 1950s or 60s. He said, you know, the only thing that has ever allowed that break to work as it should is gold. You know, as long as a central bank had to manage their money supply against gold, they, you know, were constrained about what they could do in terms of creating more money. And then obviously that all went out the window in, in 1971. But I mean, this whole notion of, of putting a break on the creation of money you know, that's the key. That's the key. And it's the fact that there isn't a break on the creation of money. That's why the crises keep getting bigger. You know, it's, it's 1929 and 1907. It's that same mechanism. It hasn't, it hasn't changed. It's just on steroids now. You know, the money it, that's involved. I mean, it's, it's funny because you can go back and read the stuff in the Depression. And they don't even use the term billions. Yeah, you know, it was such a rare term. Like when you like Rothbard, I think in his book, they talk about milliards, 
you know, a thousand million. And bond traders still call a yard, you know, it's a billion dollars worth of bonds or whatever. And I mean, think about that. That's, you know, it's less than a hundred years ago. A billion dollars was was a sum that you didn't even have a number for. It was a thousand million. And now we're at trillions. Now, yeah, we're we're better off than we were in 1929. We're not a thousand times better off. You know what I mean? I mean, they had cars, they had electricity, they had lights, they had planes, you know. And and I mean, what better, I think, example of of the fact that the lack of a break on the creation of money has got us to where we are. You know, it's three orders of magnitude, you know, thousand. I think I take for granted that I can't, I can't fathom what a trillion is. I can't, I, it means nothing to me. It's, it's so astronomically large. I have no relevance to it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, you know, if you think about it, it's basically a meaningless number. Right. You know? Yeah. No, it might as well be really 10 is. trillion. Third amount of money. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny you say the break because I, I viewed, you can see gold used to be a break on governments printing money. Um, and then when Nixon took us off the gold standard temporarily, right? Exactly, um, yeah. I, I think it, you know, it, it, it removed, it, so the, what it showed me, we, for me, WTF happened in 1971, is that we realized that our monetary system was being protected by a guy like Richard Nixon. And it's not Richard, you know, it's like, it's not Nixon that like did all this to us. It's the fact that that system will always rely because the, the gold will always end up centralizing in the vaults, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the issue is um, like, for example, I'm, I'm not against the central bank. Um, and I, I mean, from a historical perspective, you can look at the Bank of England I mean, the Bank of England was successful for centuries. You know, there are people that argue, and I'm sympathetic to the argument, that one of the main reasons the British Empire expanded the way it did, it wasn't military power, it wasn't naval power. It was the fact that their currency was so good. Mm-hmm. And when they spent a pound in all these countries, it meant something. It was, it was real tangible wealth. And, you know, I mean, the Bank of England, you know, worked... I mean, and I don't know what the number is, but people say it never was beyond, it was between 20 and 40% coverage with gold. You know, that, you know, that, that if they had for every dollar in gold they had as a reserve, they had, you know, five or two and a half dollars or pounds, whatever, out there in circulation. And um, so again, like a rule, a solid rule based, that's got some sort of thing that can't be, discretionarily created, um, I think a central bank can work. And I think the Bank of England, you know, demonstrates that. And, you know, it's funny because after 1971, that's when they came up with SDRs, you know, all this paper gold. And it was all a way of gaming the system, you know, to make it seem like it was solid and it was completely, you know, flimsy, you know, because these SDRs, there's no limit on how those can be created you know so it is interesting to me so i do know uh, some of the monetary policy of the central bank of england was similar to the united states in the regard that there were periods of time when they suspended redemption of specie for 30 years 20 years whatever it was um 
through a lot of the same time periods of the free banking era of the United States. And I, I think even, even under Bretton Woods, which I at this point pretty much call a pseudo gold standard because sure. the, the, the constituency couldn't settle to specie, right? Yeah. They had to use the government paper. It was illegal for them to hold the gold or redeem the gold. Um, and I don't even think U.S. citizens couldn't even own gold certificates till like 1963, which you think about that, that doesn't make any sense because the dollar was technically a gold certificate, but neither here nor there. Um, even under a system where only the sovereigns could settle in specie, it still pegged the whole of the economic reality to something, right? There was still some sort of accountability in terms of um, how far they could let it spin out of control before they had to reel it back in to some degree. Um, and then, like Ben said, like it wasn't necessarily Nixon that did it, but it was Nixon that signed the order and said, OK, this is it. Like yeah, we're a gold standard. Down. He was there. But what you're talking about is the difference between a gold standard and the gold exchange standard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the gold exchange standard is one of the reasons the depression happened was there were two key currencies, the, the pound and the dollar. And the Great Britain was running these huge deficits. And so all these pounds were going overseas. And, you know, so they counted as a reserve, say, in France. But then France would take those pounds and send them back to England where they could earn interest. So the same pound was a reserve in two places at once. And, you know, Jacques Rueff, you know, he cautioned against that back in the 30s. He said, this is, this is going to be a mess. And, of course, he did the same thing in the 1960s. Then it was the dollar. Euro dollars. You know, that was the key currency. And, and that's what he's saying. It's like you have a country that can run deficits with no tears. You know, sure, you can get your dollars back for gold, but as long as the U.S. runs these huge deficits, that dollar is a reserve someplace overseas, and then it ends up being a reserve back in the U.S. So the whole self-correcting nature of the system, it's, it's short-circuited. It's like putting pennies in your fuse box, you know, because the circuit keeps tripping. It's like, well, let's, let's just put a penny in there and, and solve that problem. Yeah. Hey, Peter, what, so what do you think, you know, I hear a lot of talk about uh, de-dollarization, you know, what is, what is Russia and China want? And I know China's got like their digital thing that they're doing. I'm not, not talking about that. I'm thinking more on like a geopolitical game theory, monetarily speaking. Do you, do you feel that shift as well? Do you see one of these countries stepping in and grabbing the reserve currency? I mean, it's, it's, I, I think something, just for something to replace a dollar, I think it's going to be incremental, you know, sort of thing. But certainly, I've said this before, like on Twitter and stuff, we, the U.S., will rue the day we weaponize the dollar, which mm -hmm. certainly have done. Um, because you're just putting a gun to people's heads and saying, you know, find another way to settle your transactions. I mean, um, like, I think I read that, that um, Russia and China it's essentially a barter agreement where, you know, Russia is sending huge amounts of energy, gas and oil to China, and then China is sending all this manufactured goods to, to Russia. But the point is it's, it's tens of billions, hundreds of billions of nominal dollars in trade that no dollars are being used to settle, you know? And um, so certainly I think things like that are gonna continue. Um, I mean, I was in the Air Force, I, you know, I, I read military history and all these other things. I mean, the only argument that halfway makes sense 
for our invasion of Iraq, and I don't mean it's like in any sort of moral sense, but in a, in a national interest sense, was supposedly when sanctions had ended, Saddam Hussein was going to start selling his oil in yen and euros. And You're on the money, Peter. Yep. You know, and um, it's, it's going to be those sort of steps. You know, I mean, the dollar just has this dominant position. I don't think it can vanish overnight. But I mean, like I said, we will rue the day we weaponize the dollar, you know, and that's that's water under the bridge. Now we, we can't put that horse back in the barn. You know, we've motivated too many people to, to look for other ways, you know. And I've said for a while now, looking at this funded, like looking at the U.S. fundamentally, economically on a macro level and looking at things like unfunded liabilities. And, you know, it's like you said earlier, like the, the Fed cannot raise rates. Maybe they taper. Maybe they stop buying assets. Maybe that maybe that's the new taper. Maybe just simply stopping QE is the new taper. But they're running out of leverage to pull. Um, and I've been saying probably for a good three, four years now that the only way out from here, and I say out, I use that term loosely, the only way forward from here is debasement. Um, especially as we start seeing, you know, social security, um, you know, because what, what is the politic, what are the politicians going to do? They're, they're democratically elected. They can't get up on stage and say, I, if I'm elected, I'm going to do away with social security. Like it, it's just not um, politically palatable to be a fiscal conservative in a democracy uh, just simply isn't. And there's no way forward uh, with all of this unfunded liability coming due other than currency debasement. And in a world facing de-dollarization, like Ben talked about, uh, we're looking at, you know, some potentially scary um, internal instability from that. Yeah, no, no. And I mean, you know, um, again, historically, you know, all the big revolutions, what sparked them, I shouldn't say all, but what sparks the majority of them are, is an inflation. Mm. You know, I mean, that's, you know, more often than not at the root of any sort of big upheaval. You have know? you have you seen the charts that show the uh, content of the silver denarius in Rome uh, throughout the time period of the Roman Empire and how it just goes down and down and down till the empire collapsed? Yeah, I mean, there's this guy, uh, Ferdinand Lips, who was a mm -hmm. banker. Gold, Gold Wars. Exactly, which is a fantastic book. Um, and he made this observation about the monetary standard is related to the moral standard, you know, and the point is when people can save money and that money holds its value, well, then they have time for cultural pursuits and, mm -hmm. and, you know, all these other things. And, you know, you stop and you think about it and you're like, you know, I don't know what the population in Germany was in 1800, you know, or 1750, it was probably, I don't know, 20 million people. Well, somehow they spit out Beethoven, you know, Mozart, all these other people. And it's like, you know, where are these people today? And it's like, you think about what Ferdinand Lips said. And he's like, you know, maybe he was on to something. You know, and the whole notion that there's this positive inflation rate that is somehow ideal. I mean, that is transparently absurd. You know, when you think about all the technology, I mean, prices should be going down, you know, and if they did <laughs> you know, that would help everybody out. I mean, the fact that they're talking about, a, you know, some sort of optimum positive inflation rate, I mean, it's the most absurd thing imaginable. But like you said, they recognize the only way to 
deal with these debts is through inflation. They're, you know, they can't be dealt with. Have you read Jeff Booth's book? I'm familiar with it. Um, I haven't read it. He and I have exchanged some things on Twitter, but yeah, I know that's basically his. Yeah. His, you know, his point exactly. And I couldn't agree more. You, yeah. you should definitely uh, check his book out if you, when yeah. you have the chance, it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Peter, you're, it's funny because you're saying stuff that Colin and I have said on a number of the uh, podcasts, we, you know, the prices or just should be going night down. between each other. Just yeah. It, and it's so funny to see people use logic to come to like same conclusions individually. And it's funny because Colin and I, having talked about very similar stuff to what you were just talking about, we came up with another theory that's really closely related to what you just said, which it's not just that prices should be going down, but because technology is accelerated starting in the 1970s, um, computing, computing in itself has started increasing productivity um, kind of more exponentially as time went on. And Jeff Booth kind of touches on this, but he doesn't say it explicitly like what I'm about to say it, is that they've actually had to, or, or like the, depending on how you look at it, they've been able to print more and more money because of that productivity growth. You know what I'm saying? No. And, and I mean, that's what I think Murray Rothbard argues about the Great Depression, because, um, you know, you had the Industrial Revolution mm. and it was this huge explosion in productivity and which was putting a a downward pressure on prices and you know the, the banks were creating all this extra money which was making prices go up and it was like this giant tug of war between the deflationary aspects in terms of lower prices created by technology and productivity versus the inflation that was created by the banks yeah i mean 100 percent, no doubt about it you and know that's how, that's how i describe it today is that we're kind of sitting on this knife edge between um, between inflation and deflation, which is really confusing for people to hear. They're like, well, which one is it going to be? It's like, it's kind of hard to say. Yeah. And I always say it kind of depends on whatever the Fed decides to do too, right? Well, the other thing too is I think, you know, I, um, I might have written an, article, written an article about this on my website, but, you know, one of the biggest victories economists have is they've kind of changed the nomenclature around inflation and deflation. Mm -hmm. You know, um, those used to strictly be termed or discussed in, from the standpoint of the money supply. Mm -hmm. You know, a deflation was when you had, you know, basically a debt bubble collapse and all this money dying and go to money heaven, you know, and all of a sudden the money supply collapsed. That was deflation. Um, but, you know, now they talk about deflation as falling prices as some sort of malady when a healthy economy produces falling prices. And it's the same with inflation. You know, inflation was always in terms of the money supply. And, and that kind of sleight of hand plays into exactly what you're talking about, is they're using all these beneficial aspects of technology to figure, you know, to kind of hide and create this haze that keeps people from understanding what they're doing to the money, which is they're killing it. You know, they're absolutely taking it out and putting a gun in its head. Yeah, yeah. It allows them to be even lazier and lazier because each new year, there's all this extra that they can kind of print. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, again, I'm, I mean, I'm a mechanical engineer and, and um, you know, I spent some time building, you know, power plants, you know, working on a team at both power plants like I did it myself. Um, and I mean, you look at these machines, these, you know, these turbines, there are a thousand megawatts, you know, hundred years ago, they were 10 megawatts, you know, and they were 10% efficient. Now they're 60% efficient. You know, it, it's just night and day. And it's like, well, how could that not 
result in lower prices, you know, and, um, and I've, I've plotted this. You can look at the price of electricity, which is arguably the most important goods price in the economy. And I mean, it fell from like 1910 right to 1971, mm -hmm. you know, and I mean, it fell a lot. It fell like from six cents a kilowatt hour to like two cents. And then, of course, since then, it's gone straight up. But I mean, it wasn't like the electricity generating industry suffered because the price fell by 60%. It's like, well, no, that was a consequence of what the industry was doing. It wasn't like a millstone. And, um, and it was exactly what it was doing. I'm sure as a, as a Texan, you're, you're in Texas, right? Yep, yep. As a Texan, you know, you know, we produce more oil today than we ever have. Yep. Uh, and, and people love to say, oh, well, that's because we had peak oil in the 1970s. No, we didn't. Like not even anywhere close. Like we don't, we're, we don't even know how much oil reserve there is. There's so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, I, you, yeah, I mean, you're, it's, I mean, that's really it in a nutshell is the problems are systemic. You know what I mean? People are looking at, like I said, you know, the days of, of rearranging deck chairs are over, you know, um, it's, it's a fundamental problem at the most basic level just manifests itself in, in a million different ways, but it's all from the same source. You know, I think in a lot of ways, our pursuit of luxury has been our downfall. Because um, it, it used to be, you know, when, when life was survival, when life was a battle against nature, and you had to wake up and go chop firewood, or you'd freeze to death. Um, there was sort of like this natural understanding that you had that the work that you did was what you know kept you alive and what what restored order like you're you're fighting against the entropy of nature um and markets are a natural product of you know doing work and creating value and then sometimes someone else may want some of that value and you say well hey i'll give you my axe for 10 of your apples or whatever um and somewhere we lost the plot where where we we started to say okay no all this entropy is the marketplace and we need this entity with all of the power to come in and like control it from the top i mean it it's it's the kind of thing the kind of emergent phenomenon i think is only possible in the endless pursuit of luxury in greediness and and laziness and and i say that cautiously because a lot of people when they look at our website, WTF happened in 1971, they'll say, oh, it was just greed. It was just greed. And I say, really? Like, we just got more greedy in 1971. And ever since then, like, that doesn't make sense. But I do think. People haven't changed. You know, like we right. talked. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, you kind of see it like, um, again, not to get too political. I mean, she said it and she's got to live with it. But like when Hillary Clinton said, well, I won the, the parts of the country that create 70% of GDP or 70% of the country's wealth. And you're like, really? You know, you won New York City. I mean, yeah, New York City has a huge GDP, but I mean, what do they really make? Like, what does the average person use that actually comes from New York City? It's like nothing. Financial you know, products. Yeah, finance. financial products. Exactly. And um, I wrote an article on my site. It was inspired by, you know, her saying that. Um, and I talked about the Los Angeles aqueduct and um, this was built at the turn of the century. And, um, you know, I mean, Los Angeles is a desert, you know, it's, and it needs water. And anyway, it got this water from the Owens River and it built this Los Angeles aqueduct. And 
you know, they had engines and stuff, but these huge pieces of the aqueduct had to be towed by a mule team out in the desert. And uh, it took a it took 52 mules on this one team and nobody could drive these mules. You know, they're all going in a million different directions. Anyway, they find this guy whistling Dick and he does it. And, and I mean, without this guy, without this whistling Dick guy, this aqueduct never would have been completed. And I mean, it's still in service today. You know, it provides like 30 percent of the water in Los Angeles. And I mean, this guy probably got paid, you know, two dollars an hour. You know, and I compared him with Hank Paulson. You know, I was like, Henry Paulson made $500 million for Goldman Sachs. And, you know, if GDP is your measurement, yeah, Henry Paulson beats Whistle and Dick, hands down. But if you look at who really created value, it's, you know, you've got to look way, way beyond the money. So I, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. And again, it's, it's this artificial nature of the money. It's no longer associated with real production. And you have these people who accumulate all sorts of money that think, well, gee whiz, I, you know, I'm the fulcrum upon which, you know, the lever, the lever pulls the earth and, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. I'd like to share with you some revelations that uh, Ben and I have talked about. And, and these are, this is a little out there, but I, I'd like to know what you think. So I read a book by uh, someone named Rana Fahur and it was called Makers and Takers. And her, she, I don't know if you've read it, but she argues that, um, I don't recommend it, by the way, for the listeners, but it, it was interesting because it got me thinking about something in a new way. Um, she, she attributes all of the maladies to the financialization of the United States, which I agree. However, the, fi the financialization is a byproduct of debasement and expansion yes. of credit um, because people need to find a way to preserve purchasing power. So they turn to financial instruments. And that's why, you know, finance and because in the beginning of the book, she makes the point that how did finance go from you know, making up a 10th of corporate profits prior to in like 2002 to like 33% of corporate profits in like 2010 um, and, and balloon from there. And the answer is obvious to anyone who knows monetary history and economics. Um, but when Ben and I started talking about this back and forth, you, you know, some of the revelations that we had were that the modern day CEO, um, not necessarily the guy who goes out and starts like a window washing business, but the well-capitalized, the ones that are closest to the, to the money spigot, right? The cantillionaires, the, the venture capitalists who are, I guess you'd call them the movers and shakers. They're in a lot of ways, they're not even providing products to the consumer, but they're satisfying um, a consumer demand for financial instruments. And their, their biggest product is financial engineering. Like you, you see it in equities, like a lot, you know, it's why Elon, in my opinion, it's one of the reasons Elon Musk is one of the most popular people in the world is because he's a financial engineer. Like he knew how to build a brand and make it extremely successful, regardless of how profitable his company is <laughs> and raise a ton of money doing it. Um, and, and likewise, you know, CEOs and not necessarily in Elon Musk's case, because he is an engineer and he, he does build things, whether you believe those things are profitable or necessary or that the market values them is a different story. Um, some of these people, they're just good at working with regulators. They're good at jumping through hoops. They're good at, um, you know, just getting into wherever they need to be to like keep the money coming. And uh, it's interesting when you think about it like that, that, you know, they're, they're entrepreneurs, but in a different way. It's, it's why Apple doesn't spend money on R&D anymore and they have a hundred billion dollars sitting offshore or whatever. No, I mean, that's it. I mean, I, um, 
I mean, I tried to make it through Atlas Shrugged. And I wasn't able to be perfectly honest. It's a struggle. Um, but I know she used to talk about like the push pullers. I think that's what she called them or something, you know, and, and certainly, um, you know, these people, they're not associated with any real production, but, you know, they're able to, to kind of game the system and, and put themselves in a position where, you know, they can extract, you know, more than their share by, you know, like I, she call, I think she calls them push pullers or whatever, you know, basically influence peddlers, you know. Um, I mean, I think this is true. Mark Warner, who's like the senator for Virginia, I, you know, he was involved in writing all this legislation around cell phones. Well, he knew the legislation backwards and forwards, and he knew where you could like, you know, drive a herd of elephants through sideways and, you know, created a company that was able to take advantage of it and, you know, sold it for a couple hundred million dollars. And now he's a senator. But, you know, yeah, I mean, you're right. You're you're totally right that those sort of, uh, you know, opportunities exist. And whether they create real value or not, you know, the people who are behind them often become very, very wealthy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you guys got anything else that you'd like to talk about before we wrap it up? Um, I just wanted to thank peter for all his wisdom and insight that he's constantly sharing on twitter because I've, I've actually learned a lot about the fight you know the fi especially the financial crisis of course because you yeah. post about that a lot um but to learn about monetary history as well and i've always just appreciate your perspective so i, I appreciate well, you coming I on peter that that very much you know like i'm trying to build up uh, an audience so i can have some success getting my book published but in the meantime you know it's great to exchange ideas and um you know, Twitter doesn't have the best reputation, but I mean, I find it, you know, as long as you're personable and, and open, it's a great way to, to expose yourself to new ideas and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone go follow Peter on Twitter. Be nice. He's not a Bitcoiner yet. All right. <laughs> but he does. It's okay. All right, guys. So you can interact with people that don't agree with you yet. It's fine. <laughs> I feel like he's a little, he's a Bitcoin curious, maybe. Yeah. Bitcoin curious. <laughs> like I said, we'll I get him there. understand it. I completely, <laughs> completely understand it. Right. <laughs> on why why it is what it is 100 all right uh i'll put links to your twitter and I'll, I'll put your website down in the show notes too so if people want to check that out they can i'm trying um, to get an article out once a week uh, but there's a timeline you can get some biographies of the people who are kind of the real movers and shakers of the crisis so 